Welcome to The Great Work radio program. The Great Work radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Adele Gardner is a lecturer at the University of the West of England. She's done extensive research on Frida Harris, who painted the imagery for an entire tarot deck for Aleister Crowley. Adele, how did you get interested in Frida Harris and the tarot she did for Aleister Crowley? I've, I've always been interested in the tarot, um, and I came across the soft tarot in my teens. Um, so it was something which particularly resonated with me. My interest with Frida Harris is almost is also very much connected with my interest in the lives of women. Um, certainly, Western esotericism has been traditionally quite a male preserve. Um, Frida Harris made a very large contribution through her art, and so I'm interested in that. I'm interested in her both as an artist, but but very much as a woman, woman rather, who was living in a particular time. You'd mentioned that the Western esoteric tradition was more or less male-dominated. What about the Golden Dawn? Because I understand that that was started by males, but it had a lot of female presence. And then also theosophy is obviously the exception to that rule, being that Madame Blavatsky was, she still is one of the queens of counterculture. She is. And, you know, you've raised a good good point there. And also with the Golden Dawn. But I think, there is still that thing of how women are perceived, um, which is quite an interesting thing. And also, there is very, very little, you know, there's not a great deal known about Frida Harris. Yeah. Um, know about those other women because they were very much at the forefront. And because they were at the forefront, then I suppose they were managed in a different way. But with Frida Harris, not a great deal of known at all. Um, and I think it's that that particularly interests me. These women who've played a leading role in many ways, who've made, you know, a strong contribution, but we still know very, very little about their lives. Now, you did make an allusion to Frida Harris having a life outside of her involvement with Aleister Crowley. And uh, did that also extend to a life involved with magic and the occult? Frida Harris, from the things that I've, I mean, I've never spoken to members of Harris's family, so my knowledge of Harris has very much been drawn from secondary sources, from books and so forth, and biographies which have been written around Crowley, and also through reading the letters that are available in the Warburg Institute, um, letters that passed between Crowley and Harris. But Harris certainly, I mean, she was married to... Um, a reasonably well-known political figure. So she was known within society. Um, From the things that I've heard about her, she was a relatively strong and opinionated woman. Um, What she seemed to have a strong ability to do was to, in many ways, be able to um, experience and engage with those spiritual things that were of interest to her, theosophy, this... um, you know, some some connections there. Um, around Steiner, there are some connections. 
Um, she has been associated with Christian science, co-masonry, all of those things. So we can see that there was a woman who was deeply interested in many ways um, in things which are esoteric and things which are spiritual, because I suppose there has been so little written about her, it's difficult to know how deep her engagement were. There may well be other people out there who have a far greater and deeper knowledge of Harris and those people with whom she was involved with than I do. But there's certainly enough to show that it was not just her meeting with Crowley which introduced her to thinking about um, life beyond the material world. You know, so there was right. very something, something in that which has been very strong for a great number of years in her life. Um, I think in many ways she has been eclipsed by the legend which is Crowley, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, I think in ways which perhaps other people have not, I mean, Blavatsky, for example, I mean, I suppose, is um, to try and compare Harris to Blavatsky would be totally inappropriate. Um, I mean, whereas Blavatsky was somebody who was very much a trailblazer in some ways. Um, Harris wouldn't come in that way, but the contribution that she made was a strong one. And I think also her ability to work alongside Crowley, but not actually be overpowered by him, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, the way that you're portraying her, it almost sounds like she's a, a sort of complement to Crowley, as if they were the male and female aspects of, of, of work, right? And, oh, yeah. um, is, and so, you actually, I think you actually mentioned something similar to that in your talk. Yes, I mean, there's certainly, I think that is very much the case. Um, those two people working together, I mean, there's been an awful lot written about Crowley, which suggests, I mean, you know, likewise, I've never met, you know, I never met Crowley. So it's a case of that all you can take on board is what other people have written about the person, other people. Yeah of that individual. Now, can you give us a little bit background, more background on, uh, on Frida Harris? Frida Harris, I mean, she came out of, um, her father was a surgeon, quite a well-known surgeon. So she obviously, you know, she came from a comfortable, at least middle-class family. Um, she would have been, I mean, there's certainly evidence to support the view, both in her son's writing and in other people's accounts, that she was involved with the women's suffrage movement. Mm -hmm. um, she also, as many women of her time, um, would have been, I mean, marriage was the main career that was open to women in the time that she was born. Um, she was married to a political figure who was very well known. So it would have also been a case of those people that she associated with um, would she would have had to have been mindful of her husband's political career. I mean, we know nowadays we only have to look at political figures now, and they're very, very open and easily exposed to scandal, aren't they, for example? So, the, Crowley in many ways was misunderstood. Um, I mean, there is no doubt at all that he gave a great legacy to the esoteric and the occult. 
Um, and very often the things that have been written about Crowley are those sensationalised aspects of his life. But certainly the collaboration between Harris and Crowley show very clearly that they were in tune with each other. Um, that didn't mean that they always agreed with each other. I mean, there's certainly plenty of evidence within the letters to show that, and also in other accounts, that there was at times conflict between them. Um, conflict over her position as a woman, conflict over those things that he wished her to do. Um, I think what we've got to make very clear is, even though she was known as the artist executant, she was not in any way somebody who was painting by numbers, if that makes sense. While she was guided by Crowley, and very much guided by Crowley because his magical knowledge would have been superior to hers, um, there's very much a sense of Harris the artist there, if you see what I mean. So it's not yeah. somebody just depicting um, what somebody else is clearly telling them to do, which is when I use the term painting by numbers. You know, it's not that case of somebody, somebody um, having total control over something. I think Harris brought a great deal of herself to the tarot deck. Right. No, you can tell that it's very inspired. Yes. And that inspiration could not have come from anyone else. No, no, most certainly not. Now, um, you, you mentioned the suffragette movement. Just on a side note, have you ever come across any information about the suffragette movement having any kind of occult undertones or influence? I know that there's definitely speculation on conspiracy theories having to do with the suffragette movement, having political agendas that were not necessarily apparent at the time. But was there any influence? Have you Do you know or think that there may have been any influence from occult movements or freemasonry on the suffragette movement there's they're quite well there would have been women who would have been involved in co-masonry i mean the suffragette movement was a large movement women's suffrage was a big political movement and there were several fractions within it um i mean there were those people who were highly politically active and would be um would feel that it was wholly appropriate to go out there and be very civilly disobedient. Um, there were other women who protested in different, um, more, more conservative forms. But because of the large numbers of women who were involved, I think it would be almost, you know, it would be very safe to say, yes, there must have been women who were involved in co-masonry, theosophy, other things that would have been also very, very, I mean, you take somebody like Annie Besson, for example, um, who was very concerned with the rights of women, very concerned with women's ability to control their own fertility, those types of things. Mm. So there certainly would have been something, you know, I'm sure there would have been connections. Can you tell us a little bit about Annie Besson? Because you're based in Bristol, am I correct? Yes. Yeah, and Annie Besson was also based in Bristol, was she not? Yes, there is still, you know, I mean, theosophy is quite strong in Bristol. Is it? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it's still very active. It's not something which I am personally involved in, um, but it was something which was very powerful and it's still something which continues to this day. So, I mean, there, there certainly is still that strong link in Bristol 
um, they have a property in Bristol, they hold regular talks and meetings and all of those things. You know, so it is something which is still very active. But going back to, to Frida Harris, I think we can, we can clearly say that she was a woman who was strongly positioned within society. She would have known many people. Um, she would have had connections, I mean, connections from her own, um, from herself as an individual woman, but also connections from the people that she would have known through the political life that her husband had and that she would have been active within as well. So I'm sure, you know, there were, this is why I think she would be um, a fascinating subject um, for a biography because there must be information out there. Um, and to be able to piece it all together and to be able to take her art, because I mean, the tarot is a very important contribution that she has made. But there must be, I mean, she certainly painted tracing boards, um, going back to co-masonry, but also there must be, one would hope, perhaps a wealth of art out there that um, could be attributed to Frida Harris that people know very little about. Well, what happened to the uh, tarot paintings? Are they still um, existing? Yeah, or no? As I understand, there are things within the Warburg Institute. Are they? Oh, okay. Yeah. Was Warburg did, was Warburg involved at all? Was Abby Warburg uh, involved at all with Alistair Crowley? There were lots of connections with lots of different people. Mm -hmm. um, also, there will probably be things that belong to Frida, you know, paintings that Frida Harris. Um, has done in private collections. I mean, it may be that family members have some of that. It may be that private collectors, you know, there will be things which are out there. And there are uh, no biographies on Frida Harris? Not that I am aware of. Really? There may well be people who are working on biographies of Frida Harris at the moment, but I'm not aware. And please let me know if there is, and, you know, Jesse, I'm not aware that anybody has published at this time, a full biography mm. on Well, Thelema is a very uh, male-oriented religion, essentially. It's, it's, in fact, it's a religion of masculinity, isn't it? Women were always involved um, with Thelema. Um, women are still heavily involved um, with Thelema today. I think if we put um, Crowley in context of the time in which he was born and lived, um, then we're talking about times when um, the male influence was, was more prominent anyway. I mean, Crowley worked collaboratively with a number of women. Um, some of his writing was produced collaboratively um, with the support of other women. When you look at um, Kefalu and so forth. I mean, you know, women were quite involved with um, Crowley's life. Also, when you look at the inception of the Book of the Law, um, I mean, Crowley's wife Rose um, did play a significant part in that. I yeah, mean, but yeah. Biographies suggest that it was Rose who alerted Crowley to the fact um, that he was about you know, he would have these messages passed on to him. Um, so I don't think that we can 
necessarily say that Salima is masculine in a sense which denies the role of women, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you mentioned Chafalu. Um, have you done any uh, uh, searches on the internet to see pictures of the current state of Chafalu? Because I actually wanted to go down there and see it. It's falling apart and there are still uh, frescoes uh, on the wall uh, that painted by Aleister Crowley that are just like crumbling. I mentioned that to Judith Noble. I understand that it's in, in quite a bad state of repair. I think there have been a number of attempts to raise enough money um, to actually be able to buy it and restore it. Um, I don't know how successful um, any of those attempts currently are, but I think there's certainly been, been interest by different people well, it was on the market two years ago for 1.8 million euros, which was a joke because it's just a shock, you know. That's, that's what I mean. So, I mean, it's, it's that case of there would need to be a great deal of money raised to actually be able to, to buy it. And then there would be the whole restoration project would have to be done. But I think there have been people who have tried um, because certainly um, as far as Salima is concerned, obviously... Um, it's a place which has a great deal of importance and it would be, um, you know, absolutely wonderful if enough money did appear so that it could actually be restored. Yeah, it's, it's surprising that no celebrity has, like, made any attempt to salvage it and save it. Um, I suppose, wouldn't it be wonderful if they did? Wouldn't yeah, well, you'd think that's somebody like Mick Jagger or somebody. I mean, he's got to have enough money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm afraid I, um, whilst I'm a great fan of Sir Mick and have been um, for a great number of years, I've no idea um, what his what his spiritual beliefs are and whether or not he would be likely to um, to sort of um, feel that that would be a good way to spend his money. But wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody did? Well, Kenneth Anger tried to fix it in the '50s, but I don't think he really has enough money to go and buy it. So. Well, it sounds, you know, as if it's one of those things where maybe one day there'll be a process of negotiation and hopefully, you know, <laughs> money might be found to restore it. Yeah, go- before it completely falls down. Yeah, but um, going back. Well, yeah. I, actually, I wanted to ask you, you'd mentioned Beardsley um, in reference to, I guess, an inspiration for the, uh, the Frida Harris Tarot. And were you referring to Aubrey Beardsley? Yeah. I really? Mean, Was she influenced by... Aubrey Beardsley's work when she was doing this, the, her Toro? I think we can, I think we can see resonances there, but yes, in some of the cards she was. I think if you go through, um, I mean, you go through the whole tarot, so bearing in mind that she painted some of those images um, a number of times, we can see that there are a great deal of different influences there. I mean, what she managed to do and I mean, Crowley herself has acknowledged this. I mean, the whole project, I mean, when they first started out in the late 30s, deciding to work together to collaborate to, to produce a tarot, the whole idea was that it would be something which would take no more than six months. Um, if that, that it would be a minor remodeling, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Instead of um, taking something and creating something which would be totally different, Crowley's idea was that they would work together, they would 
produced something which was reflective of the system, but in no way a, a total reworking, which it turned out to be. So she was the driving force through deciding that they would do something which would be so detailed and so collaborative that it would take, you know, five years to do that. Yeah. So, you know, she was prepared to devote considerable time and energy to the project. So I think, you know, that shows um, a very strong commitment to wanting to develop not only her own magical understanding, which would have occurred over that process, but also her commitment to leaving something to students of the esoteric, which would be a lasting legacy. Uh, the style um, of some of the tarot uh, cards that I've seen that she did is sort of art deco yeah. um, in, a, in a really pleasant way. And, uh, yeah. and all of the cards that I've seen are, are very attractive and appealing and colorful. They are, I think, she was able to move, to, to be able to depict things in a way. I mean, the tarot is very much a tool to engage people in shifting their consciousness, isn't it? It's a tool which is often used for meditation. It is about getting people to move away from the mundane of the everyday and to, to change to change their engagement with consciousness. And the images that she produced are particularly, I believe, effective in doing that. You really? know, Why? Why? Well, some of them are stunningly beautiful. I mean, you go, so for argument's sake, if you go to um, something like the Two of Cups, um, quite stunningly beautiful, you look at... Um, some of the other cards that she's done, and there is a great beauty there. Others um, are actually, they take you back a little bit. Some of them, some of the images are actually a little bit difficult to look at. Some of them. Why? Because they're, they're uh, frightening or ugly? There are some aspects of that, I suppose. Um, there are some aspects of taking you out of human realms. I mean, she doesn't. She doesn't necessarily. When she, when you show people, because I mean, really, with the tarot, you're talking about archetypes anyway, aren't you? As opposed to um, individual human subjects, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So it's about Jungian thing of, of the archetype, um, and she does this. I think she takes something which resonates when she's painting figures, and she takes something which resonates the human form in some ways, but also gives it an entirely different aspect as well. And I think that's, that's quite powerful. Um, she's also able, I mean, through the use of colour, through the use, I mean, some of the cards as well, um, almost, I mean, while some of them are very symmetrical, and obviously there are strong links with geometry there, mm -hmm. uh, and Rudolf Steiner, I mean, that's, you know, that's quite evidently there and quite clearly there in the cards. But there is also that sense of not being able in many cases to hold something to a place in time, if that makes sense, Jesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the tra the transcendental nature of tarot yeah. that should be present, right? 
yeah. yeah. And I think she captures that beautifully. So I think she's able to merge through her use of colour, which obviously would have been in line with those things that Crowley was advising her on, but also her ability to, I mean, there were debates, I mean, there were debates between them. Um, he didn't necessarily agree with some of the styles that she used. Some of those things, you know, he did not feel were representative of how he would necessarily have wanted things to be. But there was that sense of her being able to trust, I suppose, her artistic vision. I mean, certainly in the letters, there is enough there to confirm the view that these were not just um, flat paintings to her. These were very much real things, things that she was working with, things which had a sense of power outside of themselves, if that makes sense. So she was working with something which was, which was in her, certainly within her mind, if nowhere else, if you see what I mean, was living and breathing. Yeah, how do, how do people go about designing the tarot? Are there specific precepts that you have to follow, um, like um, it's a given figure of a given gender holding certain objects? Or what, how do they do that? I don't see that that would, while there is obviously, as there is with anything, a tradition in so much that, you know, you have a certain number of cards, um, the actual, the images that you depict, I mean, we only have to see now. I mean, there are many, many, many different tarot packs. Um, some of them are very similar to those that were produced by the Golden Dawn, for example. Others of them are quite different. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's necessarily um, a set way of doing it. Every every artist is obviously going to bring a sense of themselves and also a sense of whoever they may be collaborating with. Uh, but I mean, I mean, is there are there a specific types? Of, are there specific? There's obviously a specific number of tarot cards, right? So it's how many tarot cards are there? Seventy two. Yeah, so you're looking at 78 cards. 78? And um, so obviously, like in a, in a standard uh, deck of cards for playing, there's a joker, there's an ace, there's a jack. Is it the same for tarot where there's maybe a would, jester or I'm not sure what the figures are? You would have that. I mean, you would have, you'd be representing usually the four elements. So, you know, you'd be representing earth, you'd be representing air, you'd be representing water. Um, you'd be representing, you know, fire, you'd be doing those things. So you'd be looking very much the, from an elemental perspective. Um, often as well, there are astrological attributes which would be there. I mean, as with the soft tarot, there's influences from Kabbalah and all of those things. But it would depend, I think, on the direction that people were necessarily coming from, if you see what I mean. Okay, what so when, when Crowley, when Crowley and, and Harris were designing this tarot, there was a lot of leeway for them to be original. I don't know if Crowley would have envisaged, until those paintings had taken shape, exactly how original Harris intended to be. I don't think it's something that you would necessarily have said, for example, this is a Doric column, if you were designing a building, mm -hmm. 
um, you know, this is how a Doric column is going to be on all buildings. I don't think it's as, it's as straightforward as that. I think what she did is she took, um, they took many of those traditional aspects from the tarot that one would expect of a tarot deck, but through her artistic interpretation, she made them her own and she also aligned them through her collaborative work with Crowley to his magical system. Okay, right, that, right. Yeah, that, that sounds, that makes sense. Now, what about uh, the 22 steps for the initiate? Are there 22 specific special cards that are separable from the rest of the deck? Yes, I mean, it is a process. I mean, they certainly described, you know, both of them, um, the Fox Tarot as a map of the universe. So, I mean, the tarot can be taken on many different levels. I mean, there are some people who will engage with tarot who would not necessarily refer to themselves as initiates. Um, there are other people who clearly would. So I think the tarot has had many different purposes in time. Um, while there are people who would use the soft tarot, for example, um, for fortune-telling, that clearly, obviously, is not something that it was designed for as its main purpose, as you see what I mean. Yeah, what, is, what, is, the, what is the principle, in your opinion, what is the uh, principle purpose of the tarot? What, what is, what's the best function and use for it? The best function and use for it, I would see, is as a tool of meditation and, and development of the initiate. So that would be, to me, um, the highest purpose of the tarot, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not necessarily the common use that the tarot necessarily always has. Um, but that, for me, would certainly be um, the preferred use of the tarot. And also, um, I would presume that that's what that particular tarot, in many ways, had been designed for. I mean, we also have to bear in mind the historical time in which the, the pack was designed. Um, because we're looking at, you know, they met in the late 30s, they worked through until the 1940s. We know that it was, you know, this was a time of war, huge political unrest. Also, the possibility, I mean, um, with what was happening within the Nazi party and so forth, that life, as many people would have known it, was, was at risk. So there may well, and this is supposition on my part here, there may well have also been a sense within both of them of wanting to create something um, which would be there if political and world systems changed to such an extent that those things um, might be less easy to get hold of. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, and you'd mentioned the Thoth Tarot a couple times. Is that the tarot set produced by the Golden Dawn, or is that is that the no, standard tarot I'm, set? I mean, we're looking at um, the the cards that Harris um, painted. This is the Thoth Tarot that we're talking about. Oh, okay. About. What what is the stand? What is the most common tarot if you go buy a tarot at the store? Oh, that would be. I mean, that would be a difficult one for me to answer off the top of my head. I would presume 
probably the weight rider or something um, would be one that many people would start off with. Because there are many, many different types of tarot, it would be difficult for me to say that, well, is, that is the one that the majority of people would be likely to, to go and buy. Yeah, uh, I, I happened to pass um, in, in a bookstore in Rome, they had the uh, Crowley uh, set in the store window. They just happened to have it, so I got a, a look at it. Yes, and I mean, it is very beautiful. I don't know that it's the set. It certainly um, has been, you know, is something that many, 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 many people across the world engage with. Um, it's not necessarily going to be the first pack that those people who begin to become interested in the tarot would necessarily engage with first off. Um, but it is incredibly beautiful and very worth um, getting to know, I suppose. It's one of those things which it's going to take it's going to take time. It's going to take time for somebody to be able to engage with it. It's going to take time for somebody to understand the complexities of it because it's quite multi-layered. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, you had said that there was a difference between ritual versus art. So there was a difference between the ritual or and ritualistic aspects of uh, maybe Thelema or of the tarot or of the specific tarot that uh, Crowley and Harris were designing uh, versus the actual picture and that Frida Harris saw, saw said something to the fact that she couldn't understand magic through ritual but she could understand it through depiction. Yes, I think what you're picking up on there is that she said in order to be able to understand things that her way of fully engaging and understanding them was to paint and to draw them. So, also, I think as her own, um, her own development as a student of magical practice, this was part of that engagement. I mean, she was certainly a student of Crowley's. Much has been made about the fact that she paid him a stipend for magical tuition. So very much this case of beginning to engage with something and engage with something on all different levels through artistic practice, I think is very clearly something which is associated with her creation of this pack. And indeed, you know, other things, I mean, there have been, um, I don't like to sort of pick out individual books and things um, which have been written because this isn't about, um, this program is not necessarily about doing that, but Tobias Churton, for example, a recent biography has got um, some depictions of um, sketches that Harris did of Crowley when he was dying. So that whole thing of, and possibly that was not only a way of recording, but also a way of making sense of um, the loss of somebody who had become very important in her life. So it sounds to me, that makes it sound like they were actually good friends. They were. I mean, you know, it's been well depicted that they had their disagreements, but they also both seem to have a great deal of respect for the other as well. There is nothing that I have ever come across which has ever suggested that their relationship was anything other than platonic. But there certainly did seem to be 
a great deal of respect for the other. And had that not existed, I don't think, you know, that pack of cards, the tarot that we have, um, could have been completed in the way that it had. I mean, yeah, to be able I, to I think that uh, Crowley, definitely Crowley, and then also just judging by the picture that you showed of, of Frida Harris, I think that it, it could be uh, surmised that they were both rather whole individuals, complete individuals, and not necessarily subservient to their genders necessarily. Do you know what I mean? No, not at all. I mean, they were both mature people when they met. Yeah. In their 60s. So, I mean, they would have seen many things in life, you know, experienced many things. Um, both of them were obviously individuals who were, well, not afraid in any way, sense or form hold their own views and opinions and yeah <laughs> yeah especially and, Crowley on that one we got to give him credit for that <laughs> well I think also we've got to understand that um I think also some of the things that he did were possibly a smoke screen that he created a persona um which sometimes served him well and perhaps sometimes served him less well mm -hmm. uh, but he was not a he was not afraid. I think the thing that can be said about Alistair Crowley is he was not afraid to stand by those things that he believed in, um, and that he was also, um, I suppose, in many ways, somebody who was also prepared to open up magic um, to a wider um, audience, you know, a wider public, public is the wrong word, He's a, what I think I'm trying to say, and trying to say very awkwardly here, is he also developed something which was open to people from all different classes and all different cultures, mm -hmm. which may not have previously have been the case. So I think yeah. in some ways, in much the same as um, some of the work that Frida Harris and her husband did um, with some communities that were struggling and um, new poverty and so forth. It was there are some aspects there of trying to actually open things up and maybe lessen some of those class divides that were quite strongly entrenched in British society. Now, what was the relationship between Frida Harris's husband and Crowley? Is there any indication that he was jealous or didn't want uh, them to hang out together? Um, having, having read um, Percy Harris's memoirs, um, he was, while he didn't mention Crowley by name, he did mention in there that, he was, that his wife was an artist and to use his exact words, and a good one. And he did mention her tarot painting. Mm. He didn't mention Crowley by name. Um, for both of them, I mean, there certainly would have been the case that if you are a political figure, you are always wide open to controversy. Right. Uh, Crowley was not afraid of controversy. Mm. Um, you know, there's no doubt about that. But there would have been... Um, a case where Harris, uh, Frida Harris, would have had to have been acutely aware of that because, you know, being the wife of a political figure, 
um, had responsibilities um, alongside of that. And there was also her own life and her own position as an artist, as an artist that she would have had to have considered. So I am sure Percy Harris would have known Alistair Crowley. Um, they also, I mean, come came from similar educational backgrounds, both were educated at Cambridge. So there would have been things about them which, which would have been similar. However, um, how publicly willing Percy Harris would have been to have acknowledged um, Crowley, I don't know. The way you're describing it, it makes it sound like they're essentially both upper-class English gentlemen, and therefore they're going to have sort, sort of a, set, a different set of rules than common people. <laughs> Well, I think also it's, it's, it's around that thing. I mean, Crowley was not afraid in any sense of the word to be a controversial figure. I think he had probably um, accepted that that's the way it would be. Um, and in some cases he used that to his own advantage. There were other times in his life when it must have been incredibly difficult for him to have um, managed um, some of the depth of feeling which was shown against him. So, I mean, in no way did he have an easy life. Um, he had both, he had a fascinating life, but he certainly didn't have an easy one. Um, whereas for Frida Harris, there were definitely, as a woman, you still very much would have been the wife of. Um, I mean, the letters clearly indicate that um, while she was paying Crowley, um, she had no great private income of her own. You know, most mm. of the day probably would have been controlled um, by her husband. Um, I'm not, I don't think, I mean, her husband, Percy Harris, died, I think it was in 1952. Um, I'm not convinced that they were in any way, shape and form a marriage made in heaven. Um, and I think there were probably times in their life when they weren't together, if you see what I mean. Right, that's what I was, that's what I was picturing, is that Frida Harris probably had a lot of free time. But, um, but I also mean, you know, I think that there were at times challenges within the marriage, and there may well have been times when um, they were a part. Um, but I also think that there is a sense that she was very, and that shows up in the letters as well, that she was mindful of Percy Harris. She was mindful of the effect that her life might have on his. Right, right. Uh, and then you mentioned that uh, she was she was painting Alistair Crowley on his deathbed as he was dying? No, she she was sketching. There are definitely sketches. As, as he was dying? As well, certainly very close to the time of his death. Well, so that's kind of interesting because obviously they could have just taken photographs. So it pro it sounds like maybe uh, she, uh, he had asked her, or she had uh, she d had decided that she would try to see if she could sketch his spirit leaving his body or something to that extent, something supernatural. I don't know if I don't know. Um, that would be supposition, Jeffrey, and I don't know. <laughs> I think I think what it's more likely to be. Um, is going back to that sense of making a record of something, um, trying to make sense of something, bearing in mind that she would have known a very different Crowley 
to the public image of the man, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So she would have had that sense of recording something um, that perhaps would demand greater respect in the future than it had at the current time, if that makes sense. Have you actually seen those the sketches? Well, they, they are published. Are they? What, what do they look like? Are they just rough sketches? They're published um, within Tobias Churton's book. So that is... You know that is there. They are out there in the public domain. And the um, myth, the the myth is that Crowley died poor, but I've heard otherwise that he was actually uh, fairly well taken care of in his old age. Um, it depends what you would mean by poor. Um, compared to the wealth that he had as a young man, um, then yes, he would have been considered poor. Um, I think there were people who helped him supported him. Um, I mean, certainly he tutored people, so he would have had, as he did from um, Harris, you know, he would have perhaps had people who sought him out um, and were willing to pay him to support them in developing their own magical knowledge. There would have been people who had respect for him um, and helped him. But my understanding of it is that his wealth, compared to the wealth that he had as a young man, was greatly diminished. I think, you know, the fact that he he spent his latter life in a boarding house in Hastings is clear evidence that financially his situation had become a very different one as an old man than it was as a, as a young one. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay, so you had said something about Alpha Omega, and I think it, it wasn't during your talk, it was during the questions after your talk, um, and that Alpha Omega represents the beginning and the end. And I'd like to know more about that because I'm actually fascinated with the Alpha Omega that I see on so many cathedrals, from Versailles to uh, Santa Croce here in Florence, that you can see the Alpha Omega everywhere. Yes, you can. And I think it, it is, it's sort of picking up on that thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, that whole universal thing. Um, and we have something um, with the beginning. I mean, certainly um, with the tarot, um, as a map of the universe, there's the journey of the initiate, but also um, goes as well with the idea with many things within the Kabbalah and I'm certainly not a detailed student of the Kabbalah so you know I'm putting myself um, out here in some ways that notion of um, how how we imagine um, the infinite in some ways and the difficulty around doing that I think you know there is very much that as well so I think it's, it's a very complex symbolism, um, which would probably take longer than we've got tonight to totally unpick, but it is there. I mean, many of the things, many of the symbols that we see within the tarot are also um, very clearly evidenced in more conventional um, religious buildings. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, the, the sounds Alpha and Omega, A and O, it could be interpreted as being a is masculine and O is feminine, just like the Seal of Solomon with the um, opposing triangles. Alpha is A in Greek, but what is Omega O, or or is it a different letter? Do you know? No, I, I think 
I think what I'd also like to do here is sort of turn it round slightly and sort of pick up on what you're saying. I think there is a very strong component of male and female energy, which is very, very, very um, apparent with within that particular tarot pack and not just that tarot pack in, in sort of um, other tarots as well. But I think we've also got to realise that one of the things that, that Crowley did, and he did very, very successfully, and um, that Harris was also able to actually depict, is the fact that he was synthesising lots of different things. I mean, he'd, he'd looked at Jewish mysticism, he had looked at um, aspects of Indian belief systems, he had a great knowledge which he was able to draw from, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And to sort of merge that, to be able to take those different things and to synthesize them and use them, I think was one of the most powerful things that he was able to do. And I think um, one of the great contributions that Harris made was her ability to be able to combine those things and work those in um, to the individual painting, which then formed, you know, came together to form the whole tarot. Is there much Egyptian influence? Oh yes, a very strong Egyptian. So Crowley, Crowley continued on with his, his fascination with Egypt into his old age, do you think? It certainly would have been there, and I mean, it was very evident, you know, um, not only was the Book of the Law, um, the link with Cairo, but the heavy link, which is very evident, um, not only in the naming of the tarot, but in many of the symbols and the pictures and so forth, which are highly evident within that tarot system, and which also resonate with the Lima. So, you know, it is very, very strongly there. There is no doubt about that. So it's this this whole basis of him really, I suppose, being able to go through um, from ancient times right the way through. Um, I mean, we may well find that there are some historical inaccuracies um, as you know, have been found um, also within others. But that sense of reaching back into the past and bringing the past into the future, I think is very strong. Now, how popular would this tarot have been and how popular was, was Crowley in the, in the 30s? Because you can imagine his celebrity waning at some point after maybe the 20s. And so who was the target market for this product? And was there a target market at all? Or were they just doing it purely for love of, of their uh, philosophy? I don't think, um, I don't like to think of it being called um, a product. Mm -hmm. I necessarily think it was aimed at a market as such. I mean, there's certainly correspondence between Harris 
um, and Crowley, which make it clear that Harris did not believe that they were likely um, to make much money from it. Um, I think both Harris and Crowley were obviously keen for it to reach as wide an audience as was possible to do. Um, also, at the time that it was being painted, I mean, we were looking at a time of war and a time of conflict. Um, so that always causes delays and difficulties. I mean, in fact, it didn't become mass-produced and widely available until after both of them had died anyway. So, I mean, there was no sense in either of their lifetimes of um, having any sense of how widely appreciated it would be. Yeah. Um, was it was it a manufactured into a set, though, while they were alive? I, I suppose it would have had to have been photographed and then lithographed or whatever. Yes. Also, I think it's like anything else. Um, sometimes things have to wait for their time and place, don't they? Yeah. Some, <laughs> don't, we, don't we know that one? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes things have to wait until actually um, people out there are in a place in their own thinking where they're likely to be more receptive to it. Um, certainly at the time the tarot was produced, um, those, you know, at the time the paintings were exhibited and all of those things, yes, there would have been people who would have been interested, um, but perhaps not as many people who would have been open to that way of thinking as there might be, for example, today. Where were, where were the paintings exhibited? They were exhibited, um, I think, in London, and I think there was also... Um, so I may be wrong on this, but I think they may also have been exhibited in Oxford as well. There were also around the fact that when the paintings were exhibited, um, Harris did not want Crowley to be there um, because he was a very controversial figure. Um, and also, I suppose in some ways, I think we often see Crowley the man um, and that can sometimes take us away from Crowley the teacher, Crowley the person who was trying to get us, you know, trying to get people to think about um, what was their position in this universe, why were they here, what was, what was their purpose, what were they supposed to be doing, um, thinking around various incarnations that people might have, all of those things. So I think that sometimes the figure which has been um, the personality, Alistair Crowley, um, was in danger at times of eclipsing those, those very things that perhaps he was hoping. Mm -hmm. that right, right. Because he became so notorious. Yes, yes, in some ways. And I think we've perhaps, hopefully, got to a place in time now where people can realise that they need to step back from that. They need to step back, perhaps, from some of those more negative things and stories and everything which are out there, and to actually um, look at 
Salima and also to look at those other things which he has left and to make their own minds up about them. The whole perspective is skewed in, in a religious context, in a Christian context, um, placing Crowley as a satanic figure. If you look at it from in a non-Christian context, then he's essentially just another religious figure, really, you know? I don't even know if I would um, use the term religious. I think, you know, there are many things within the system. So, um, I mean, in many ways, one might see him as a philosopher. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. One might see him as a speaker along a path. You know, one might see him as somebody who was trying um, to make sense of the universe. Yeah. Um, and was using the time that he had yet had here for that particular purpose, if you see what I mean. Yeah, definitely. And were there any connections with uh, Frida Harris or Alistair Crowley to Glastonbury? I think I asked you that question when we were in Cambridge. There are no clear links that I am aware of. I mean, Dion Fortune is strongly linked with Glastonbury, as you know. Yeah, um, was she, uh, did she know uh, Crowley? Or Harris? Um, it's quite likely that they corresponded. It would be very unlikely that they didn't know each other. Yeah, how, how did you get into... You mentioned earlier that you'd, um, you'd gotten into tarot when you were very young. How mm. did you find out about it in the first place and what attracted you to it? Um, I think the visual aspect of it attracted it to me. Um, I had a grandmother who was very interested in esoteric things. So, um, astrology, palmistry, various things like that, those were things which um, I was exposed to at a reasonably young age, when perhaps some other people wouldn't. But I think it's also, um, you know, certainly with um, the tarot that Harris painted, it's so breathtakingly beautiful, that it's very, very difficult um, not to be attracted to it. I mean, I think probably my closing words on this would be that they both created something which I don't believe it would ever be possible um, to grow tired of looking at. Mm -hmm. That whenever you engage with it, however many years you might spend studying it, whether you look at it every day, whether you only look at it, you know, once every six months, however you engage with it, you're always going to see something there um, which is going to appear different in some way, um, which is going to challenge you in some way, and which is going to make it very worthwhile to go, to go back time and time and time again. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A. UGH.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program. To download the Great Work Radio program files, just search for the name Jesse War in the iTunes Store.